You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Angela Slatter is the author of the gothic fantasy novel All the Murmuring Bones. She's also written the Verity Fassbender Supernatural Crime Series, Vigil, Corpse Light, and Restoration. She's the author of 11 gothic short story collections, including the Bitterwood Bible and other recountings and Winter Children and other chilling tales. She's joined by Kathleen Jennings, who is a world fantasy award-winning Hugo Award shortlisted illustrator, and she also won a British Fantasy Award uh, for her writing. They're both based in Brisbane, Australia. Their new book together is Flight for PS Publishing. What a great publisher. Thank you for joining me, Kathleen and Angela. You are more than welcome. Thank you for having us. You know, um, uh, Angela, one of the things I'm really interested in this uh, collection that you did uh, I guess quite a long time ago, where you rewrote a lot of fairy tales. Uh, talk about that. That to me, that sounds kind of like uh, uh, a a really interesting book that I need to read. But it's kind of like uh, it reminds me of the musical idea of like say, um, uh, uh, you know, somebody doing a, an album of jazz standards, their own version of jazz standards. Yeah. So. So, but talk about uh, researching that and how you chose what would be fairy tales. Uh, well, I mean, I think it's Blackwinged Angels that you're you're talking about, which is where Flight mm-hmm. I think appeared for the second time. Uh, that was my masters actually, um, which I was doing when I, I was at QUT, and so it was a matter of reading, rereading fairy tales, going back to all the stories that I loved, and um, and picking the ones that. Uh, spoke to me the most that I thought I could do something really interesting with um, and the, f- the first one that I rewrote was actually The Little Match Girl and I wrote that on literally on a cocktail napkin on the bus uh, <laughs> it, it sort of it, it just came to me the shape and how I how I wanted to retell that one um, so that sort of got me got me started and got me started quite quickly uh, in, in what I wanted to do. Um, and I think I ended up doing nine rewritten ones for the Masters Collection, which was uh, later published as uh, Black Winged Angels. Um, and then I, and I had written Flight, which was kind of an amalgam of two, two different fairy tales, which was The Raven and White Bride, Black Bride, uh, for Paula Grant, actually, for her um, Into the Woods fairy tale anthology in a year that I can no longer remember. Um, it was a while ago. Uh, yeah, so that was kind of how that came about, you know. Uh, Kathleen, tell us how you met Angela and when you guys first started working together, because you've been working together. I've been enjoying your collaborations for a long time from, from Tartarus Press. Those are so such uh, beautiful illustrations and add so much to the work so sparsely, I'm a big fan of minimalism, and you you nail it perfectly. Thank you so much. Well, I think Blackwinged Angels was the first project I worked on with Angela, if memory serves. 
And the first time I ever used silhouettes to illustrate someone else's story. We met before that, I believe, when Angela was doing Clarion South. And I was not doing Clarion South, but I used to go along to the readings at a local bookstore, Avid Reader, and, and hang out and admire everyone from afar. So I, I think, if I recall correctly, and Angela, correct me if that's wrong, I'm pretty sure that was the first project fully illustrated we did together. I and think the, you, yeah. I think you're right, um, Blackwind Angels for um, uh, Ticonderoga. And just falling into fairy tales and Angela's version of them from the very beginning. I really love Angela's style writing and I'm also really interested in fairy tales. Long ago I interviewed uh, an author named Leslie Ellen Jones. She was on, joined me on the Fordian list. This is back when there were such things as mailing lists. So (laughs) that gives you an idea. But we talked a bit about uh, fairy tales as um, warning stories. And I'm wondering if, Angela, you could talk about keeping the setting of the warning story format in fairy tales, which you certainly do, but, and, and, you know, the the same kind of magical setting, but updating the sensibility and the feel for the 21st century, which warning stories are still quite relevant. (laughs) Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, because, you know, we've, I've, and I've talked about this a lot before, but we, we get so much Disneyfication of um, fairy tales and they're made harmless in a lot of ways, uh, which I think is a bit of a, you know, a bit of a problem. Um, and I just, I just like the idea of taking them back and stripping them back to, what was originally that um, that warning element, uh, and Angela Carter's um, <clears throat> the bloody chamber has a you know that idea of sitting around the campfire, being told warning stories, um, uh, you know that so that if you walk into the woods, you will probably get eaten. You know, there's there's genuinely going to be a wolf there, um, cross dressing or otherwise, um, you will get eaten. So so beware. Um, and I just think those are really important lessons that we need to have reinstated. Um, and if you, you know, if you look at original versions of the stories that the Brothers Grimm uh, collected, over the years they edited them and tidied them up and so, you know, changed it from your, your mother leaving you in the woods to your stepmother because... You know, you didn't want to scare the children too much. It couldn't possibly be your own parents who were a, who were a threat. So that's um, one of the themes that I'm really interested in is that your your own family is often more of a threat to you than than the stranger on the road, um, or the or the where well, you know the wolf in the bed kind of thing. So yeah, so that's yeah, that's kind of where I go with that. And as an illustrator coming into that world that Angela's creating there I find it lovely with those warning stories and the minimalism you mentioned there is that degree to which they are warning stories but to which a warning is also a possibility is the wolf the worst thing in the woods or is a wolf less threatening perhaps than a girl who meets the wolf those sorts of questions become really fun to play with the visuals of when there is that degree of possibility inherent in a warning as well yeah and and I'll just hark back sorry Rick to um, Angela Carter's 
uh, in the company of wolves, the company of wolves, because there is that line at the end of that, which is, you know, the, the wolf threatens her, but the girl laughs because she knew she was no one's meat. And I, I love that line. Um, and again, you know, maybe the girl is worse than the wolf, uh, or maybe she's a match for the wolf. Well, you know, Angela, in, in your stories and, and in flight in particular, the family is really the, the deadliest thing that one must face. And, and I think, too, that uh, Kathleen's illustrations, which are a little more on the Baroque side for this, really yeah. enforce that kind of uh, the, the terror of looking around you and seeing hints in everything uh, of the menace of those who are actually closer to you than the things which look menacing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like, uh, but even the things of, you know, your, your family who are trying to look after you, but they're also trying to force you into a shape. Um, so, you know, when the, the, the mother, everything the mother does, she thinks she's protecting her daughter, but they're also trying to force her into the shape. And then the aunt who is unknown, but there are parts of her that I think really resonate with uh, with Emma and the idea, the sort of life Emma kind of wants to have for herself. So it's very much about her finding her own path in between uh, those two models uh, and what other people want for her. And, you know, this mythology in this book, Emma be, becomes, I'm not giving any spoilers the cover is actually on the cover emma becomes a a bird um this is an interesting uh notion because sitting in front of me is a book called monarca um which is uh, you know the the mexican-american version of this story in which a girl becomes a monarch butterfly and and flies down you know, through the 3,000 miles dangerous from uh, around where I live in California, Pacific Grove, down to Mexico. So I'd like you to talk about this idea of, you know, the, the shape changing. And, and oh my God, Kathleen, your illustrations to this regard are so wonderful. You know, the illustrations add an element, both you do a great job of adding like menace and terror but also fun, and that's a really hard thing to hit because that's a you nail that target just like you got yourself a nail gun. Well, thank you so much. Playing with that story was when you said the Baroque style of these illustrations. I agree, but there's so much to play with with those themes, like you said, family, but transformation, the things that it will be transformed into, all the visuals that come as a package deal with working in the fairy tale mode, a way to embroider and meta work and shape them all into the background of the illustrations and hopefully add add to that effect of creating a world within which the words take place exactly i know i had not thought about that but that's that's mm-hmm. exactly what you do is to in a sense it's like a, a background like a soundtrack it's a visual yes. soundtrack in a sense and you have a lot of questions and andrew and i discussed as well like the particular tone to take with a scene in relation to another story we've discussed before like minor characters who might not get a subplot in a picture book but you want them to give them personality through the illustrations like the 
the dog, <laughs> the dog in yes, the service. Yes, so yes. Many, yeah. To give that them a dog sense that they <laughs> to give them a sense that they they have a a fullness that is implied in the words, but that a short story may not have space to dedicate the time to. So, and then transformation, of course, gives an illustrator so much to play with. It can be a challenge. Mm. I think it's easy to look at words occasionally, which build these incredible images, but they're moving images and trying to nail those down to a point in time on the page is a very enjoyable challenge. It's one of the delights of working with a story like this as an illustrator. How can I make something that is transforming, that has that sense of being between states, which is so often billed as monstrous in the world and yet isn't and belongs to a beautiful story? How do I make it pleasing on the page as well as a moment in time between states? And I do, like one of my favourite illustrations, I mean, I love them all, but one of my favourites is when uh, Emma sort of limps into the throne room to go to oh, her parents. That's at, so amazing. Yeah, at the start, and just, just how you've managed to add those tiny little details, like her feet have become clawed and come out from under the under the hem of the frock kind of thing. So there's just this, it's such a between state um, and, and terrifying, clearly terrifying to her poor parents who are on the throne just sitting there looking at her going, what the hell? <laughs> Um, and you have you have really captured just those moments, which are so beautiful. Thank you for creating the opportunities for them. <laughs> well, you know, too, an unspoken collaborator in this whole thing is PS Publishing, because you're not only doing illustrations in limbo and text in limbo, you're putting together, essentially designing a whole book. The book is a series of, you know, illustrations and, and beautiful set pieces that where the text and the, the illustrations are matched together. So how much of that did you guys do yourselves in be, that you turned into PS? Uh, well, we, I mean, we have, it's a bit of a long story with, with this one. This is sort of seven years in the making. We had uh, a, an earlier publisher and for a, a lot of different reasons that were no one's fault. It just didn't come off. Uh, but Kathleen had, um, you had kind of laid out how we put everything together, I think, since yes. a long time ago. <laughs> so I'd gone um, through the... Sorry, go on, I'd, Katie. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I'd gone through the story and sketched out a lot of, I think, key images, wish list items that Angela had, pictures I particularly wanted to draw and had a general overview of how it would be laid out. And then we did work with a couple designers at various stages, uh, I think, Liz, Gov uh, Liz Whiffen and Drew McGovern, I do have to give a shout out to them because they yeah. went through the manuscript as we'd laid it out and suggested places where there was still space or room or an angle to fit in a picture. So there was certainly uh, designer feedback and then PS just put it together so beautifully in the end. But yes, as, as you said, there's this there's the words, there's the images, but then there's the structure on the page, the book as object in a way that sometimes is necessary for purely prose but often isn't but once you have that those design considerations even the quality of the paper and so forth which is necessary for a book like this to make it all work yeah um and and ps were great and i'm sure we drove paul mike smith um their designer absolutely spare with the the details on the cover 
but I think what we ended up with <clears throat> is what it needs to be and it's it's really beautiful with you know that lovely frame that that Kathleen's done with the roses and the castle and the and the ravens and everything because uh, we went through a few we went through a few versions of it um, but I I mean there's a huge amount you know that I I just trust Kathleen's artwork um, well and I, I don't, you know yeah as you say I had some wish list items but I'm also reasonable about how we do them if we can do them um, you know, can we put a giant peach on the front cover? No, no, you can't. Kind of thing. <laughs> I did not suggest a giant peach this time. No. <laughs> <laughs> one day, Angela, one day. <laughs> well, you know, um, just uh, the story, I think, is so beautifully well written. And I think this is true. The prose that you write, it, it, it's really wonderful because it elevates them but not too much and you write very directly and, and to, to be frank I mean these are very menacing stories I mean as I was reading this I'm thinking well you know how much do I want to terrify my granddaughter at yes. what age <laughs> so it's good I, for them <laughs> good for them um, well I, I, a couple of years ago when the Bitterwood Bible came out I might have told you this story before Mike uh, uh, a reader sort of put on Facebook that he found that the only way to calm his newborn son down and to get him to sleep was to read to him from the Bitterwood Bible. And I just said, said oh, that's, that's so, that's so um, complimentary, thank you, but I'm not paying for any therapy that's required. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, you, one of the things that, that I think is really interesting is you know, the character development in both the prose and in the illustrations as the book goes on. So talk about, you know, creating the different stages of transformation as viewed from within uh, by the prose. And then, you know, you're, you have to transform the transformation, so to yeah. speak. So it's a, it's a two-part process or really three or four part process, it's very complicated. When you start looking at this book, it seems it you realize that some a project like this is, you know, it's like directing a movie. Yeah. And you know, and that that's the thing is that at the start of this, Emma's <clears throat> Emma's a, you know, a girl who's been sheltered all her life. There are expectations, her life doesn't have uh, too much fluidity in it. Uh, she's got a lot of boundaries and a shape that she's meant to have. Um, and as we say, you know, she does turn into a bird and is put into another kind of a shape by her aunt, but eventually she's released from that and given a quest. So, so the Emma who starts the book, um, you know, and the, and the start of the story is because she transgresses. She goes out into the garden when she shouldn't and she's not meant to. Um, then she's she becomes the raven, then she becomes a girl who's sent off on a quest. Um, and there's a beautiful illustration on page 29, to be very specific, um, <clears throat> of Emma after she's transformed back into human shape. And I, I really love the fact that Kathleen has meant to make her, has has made her look as though she's grown up um, a couple of years. And there's sort of this 
it's the point of change again. You can see the change that she's undergone. Uh, and the next thing is to go and find the glass mountain. Um, but yeah, but I, how do you go about it, Kathleen, when you're sort of translating the, the transformation? So I suppose the first thing I do is just go through and respond to the text visually. Just try and draw what I'm imagining as I read it and also try and draw try and let come out of, see what comes out of my pen as a result of reading it, how these flow together, looking for the links back and forth across the story. Something I really like about this story too is the idea that you're forced into different shapes, but that having been forced to transform, that becomes a gift and a power that you now have and can choose to use, which I really, really like. It's such an excellent metaphor for growing up generally in a way. The world's always going to put... Like you're going to flow into certain forms as the world shifts around you, but the older you get and the more forms that you've been forced into, the more forms you have access to, I think. And mm. certainly going through as an illustrator, again, picking up on all those images, finding ways to flow them back and forth through the story to put the swan story, which you only find out in the middle of the book, into the banners and hangings at the beginning and so forth, sets up sets up the later transformations, sets up a degree of fluidity, even if you're not expecting it, so that there's consistency later on. So while there is a degree of violence and vigorous enforcement of roles in the text, in this beautiful writing, there is a degree to which it is an organic part of life, as we've talked about warning stories being possibilities as well. So as an illustrator, just going through finding those links and themes interpreting it I find that a lot of my academic training and thought actually goes sideways into illustration now because it is a response to the text but then in conversation with Angela talking about the overall aesthetic that we want how fairy tale how vigorously angry where in between the imagery should be so I really like again that story in the middle page 20 and 21 where I got the chance to do a full fairy tale border where it's a structure grown of roses with tiny little images taking place within it, an adornment, a picture that is not just accompanying and supporting the story, but honouring it and augmenting it and telling the reader how to value the story. Uh, I believe I may have answered half answered the question from a number of different <laughs> That is a fantastic, actually. Um, you, I know, Angela, you teach writing, and Kathleen, between the two of you, this is a master class in how to put together uh, a book like this, assuming that you have the incredible talent that you two each have. You know, one of the things that strikes me about Angela's writing that makes it uh, really... Um, alluring to have illustrations put into it is and you are talking just referring to this is Angela's storytelling style is consists it's like a mosaic where you'll have an overall story arc but within that story there are like little offshoots where a whole story takes place within the story it's part of a story and I think you know that's an interesting nod into you know just the human psyche that we think of ourselves as having one story from birth to wherever we are. You know, you might, as you get further along where I am, uh, the, the, back, the back end becomes rather gray. <laughs> but, the, you know, that's how we 
we think of ourselves as one person, but we're really a lot of like little side stories and inlets. And I think that this idea, uh, this story speaks well to the idea of how a child develops an identity, not just one, but several that, you know, may just exist just for a moment in time. Yeah, and uh, I mean, anyone who knows me will tell you that if I start telling you a story, I'll end up by telling you 12 and then come around, you know, finally to the end. And I think that always comes through in my storytelling. Um, when I'm doing short stories, I know that I need to rein that in. Uh, and I often say to students, you know, you you can absolutely make those little diversions for your reader, um, but they must be fascinating, and then you must come back to the the other part of the the story and get forward, uh, you know, and then move it forward. Uh, it is one of my favourite ways of storytelling. Uh, just those little, hey, let's go off the path for a little bit, and then I'll then I'll drag you back on. But hey, over on the right-hand side, there's some other diversions. So, um, yeah, it's, it you know, keeps me amused. And I think that's that's probably the first thing. Keeps me amused and someone else enjoys it. That's One, a gift for an illustrator too. Uh, well, <laughs> I really like how, um, too, the, the level of illustration that is in this book, uh, it, it's nice because it, seems it allows the reader to synthesize the two i think for, you know sometimes with a graphic novel the the illustrations somewhat overwhelm the 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 written content and i'm and i'm just really old and just like oh a lot of words sorry <laughs> that said i i love this I, i'm a super fan of, of illustrated novels and illustrated books and this absolutely nails the perfect level and i think too i mean this is a book that you could easily read to a pretty young child i mean they might be minorly terrified and and you know might stay up a couple <laughs> nights but that's good for them <laughs> character building yeah. but, but, but you know these are also the, the, the stories of my childhood that's what I was read by my mom that's what I read on my own um, so you know I do remember being afraid of the dark and as we all know if you leave a limb hanging over the bed without the cover over it you're asking for a monster to get it but um, you know I'm okay <laughs> well maybe not <laughs> Um, but that was what I enjoyed as a child, and that was what I sought, you know, the, the, the fear and the warning tale. And Because there's also the relief of realising that it's okay, it's, it's not there, we're safe, we're safe in morning light kind of thing. There's also so much in the world that is horrible all the time, and having frameworks within which to understand and approach that rather than having to deal with it when it arrives unexpectedly, I think is really useful. And it's why we have lots of stories. I don't think any one fairy tale is going to solve all problems of terrifying news reports, but being exposed to stories where terrible things happen give you, so, again, so many frameworks, so many personalities you can embody, so many you know, people you can be in that moment when you need to be. But if you're walking down the street and you're pretty sure something bad's coming for you. Maybe you can become the little red riding hood who's scarier than the wolf. And I think there's a huge value in having been scared early and often <laughs> in a supportive and contained framework. <laughs> so, 
It was training. It was training for later life scaring. Kathleen, <laughs> so. uh, talk about using the illustrations to uh, frame the text to become the explicit version of what the text is, you know, implying. I think there's a really interesting uh, paradox in all of this. And you mentioned comics before, and Andrew and I have both to varying degrees been becoming more involved with the world of comics. And I love comics. But for a medium that is so much about the imagery, I find that the images in comics often need to sort of become invisible, not against the words, but against the story. They're all all flowing into a single story. Whereas in a picture book where the images are the supporting act, they are so they get to be so much more visible and every image becomes a little a flourish or a fanfare or a, <laughs> a splash image. So I, lo I love that little paradox that happens there. But in terms of framing the images in the story, I think it's related to the pacing you're altering the pacing or playing a duet with the pacing of the story. There's points where you get to a stage in Angela's writing, for example, where there is a scene which is given weight, but as an illustrator, you get to come in and actually put in the pause that follows. You get to underline something by harmonizing. You get to put in a little flourish. You get to put in an image that draws attention to the words by apparently undermining what they're saying or by hinting or by adding a little puzzle in. So it is it is sort of playing off the strength of the words. It's playing a, not against them, but in that, again, that sense of a duet or a dance where the two lean on each other, pull away from each other, pull each other over a certain line. So while the story functions beautifully on its own as prose, by creating this new object, by putting frames in places where they push the story forward or where they draw the eye over so that you're rushing onto the next page because the image tells you to as well as the words, or where the words are pushing you onto the next page, but the image goes right up the right-hand side and stops you and makes you scream to a halt and sit with the words for a moment. Uh, I find it, a it's, it's, I want to say it's a big responsibility, but it's more of a big opportunity. It's fun. It is play. You're seeing what happens where where you put in the stops and the reverb or all this all these aspects. I mean you mentioned fairy tales and that sort of sense of almost a cover album of fairy tales with black winged angels. In this way I'm getting to create a remix of an original work that is itself a remix of elements of what we both love about fairy tales. You know, it's so interesting the way you talk about it because it's really very similar to a musical collab collaboration. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, a harmony, <laughs> and a harmonies and, and reverb, yes. And uh, I love music with lots of effects. And this parallels that. You know, um, the the story structure in this too, given that you have two fairy tales, that you do a great job of fusing them and making it one long kind of slow burn. Uh, could you both talk about, uh, you know, making, unifying the, the 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 two different stories, Angela through the prose and the voice and and the single character that carries them, and, and Kathleen talk about, you know. The, the different images because the you know one is dominated by the images of transformation the other has this you know really 
beautifully <laughs> imagined of transparent uh, temple. So, so talk about, you know, creating a unified story out of two, two, two stories. Um, well, for, like from the point of view of writing, and I, I do talk about this a little bit in the, uh, the, the author's note in flight, um, uh, they were two stories that I, I had written separately and couldn't make work, and I'd written them in a different way. Um, but when I started to think about the the joining of them, because then I thought, well, I don't, I want a different kind of a main character for the Raven, who is the princess. So I, I was thinking more about um, Emma and making her a bit younger and changing her perspective and that idea of, um, you know, the roses, the, those roses out in the, the garden that sort of drew her in their hypnotic different colour changing hearts and that kind of thing um and i suppose i was thinking a little bit about briar rose as well with that you know and the idea of the the thorn what happens when you prick yourself on the thorn what what changes there um but then i also loved that idea of the the white bride black bride and the um the traditional sort of sisterly competition that you have in that and the, and the terrible things that sisters will sometimes do to each other. Um, so then I thought, well, you know, obviously they're the aunt, you know, there's a mother and there's an aunt and there is then this child who is Emma, um, who is the kind of the place between them. Uh, but I was also thinking about secrets, the fact that Emma had never heard about um, you know, she, she'd never met her aunt, she didn't have a memory of her or anything like that. But there was the story, there was the fairy tale of the, the evil, the evil aunt, uh, the black bride and that kind of thing. So I was, you know, there are, there are elements that belong very strongly to each story. And there is the, the glass mountain, which is the raven, you know, and the, uh, the bread, that never runs out and the wine that never runs out. Um, <clears throat> the iron shoes so you can you can get up the the, um, the the mountain of glass and that kind of thing. Um, so again, you know, I mean, it's, it's just, I'm writing to amuse myself. It's, um, I'm sitting around making, making shit up and people pay me for it. It's insane. So it's, um, <laughs> it's, it's yeah, it's what I love doing. But, you know, it's interesting, Kathleen, what you were saying about with graphic novels um, because in terms of Flight and the Bitterwood Bible and uh, the Tallow Wife, or which Kathleen's sort of illustrated for me, and also Black Winged Angels, um, I've just done the words and then sent it off to her and said, do what you will. Um and sometimes she'll come back for a bit of redirection. If I've got one particular image that I like, I'll say, well, how about we do that? Um, and she'll work out how to do it. But for me, with these books, it's very much a matter of, well, I'm in charge of the words and that's that's what I do. And then it's off to someone else to interpret. But the work I've been doing with you know, graphic novels, it I'm thinking about it differently and I have to think about it differently because I'm giving instruction as to how the art supports the story. So the, the stuff that I don't tell in words, I'm also 
telling through the art. So that's just a, you know, um, a change for me with that. Yeah. Well, I think too, for me, one of the things I, I wanted to talk about the Tallow Wife and the Bitterwood Bible because the style of illustrations in those is more sparse, but it's still really effective. And, and I think too, uh, this takes me back to, um, you know, what I consider the American version of the Greek myths, the Twilight Zone, mm. which was, <clears throat> you know, the the appeal of those visually. The reason those stories still appeal to us now is because the visually they are really stripped down. I mean, there's not much going on in any one frame. It's all very, you know, like one stage doesn't look low budget it's shot very nicely but nonetheless it's it's simple and i think that's exactly what kathleen does she adds the these simple little um illustrations that are very deceptive because they're really powerful as you encounter them in prose in context they they just kind of unfold but on the page they're small so uh kathleen and and, and and Angela, talk about, you know, writing and, and having illustrations that kind of, it's like, you know, those little uh, things you used to get that were sponge, kind of dried out sponge, you drop it in water and go, whoop. As you're reading those illustrations, kind of do the same thing. I've never had my art described that way. I love it. <laughs> You can take this one, Kathleen, because this is the tale with this. So. It's a very different approach with that, not just in terms of style, but also in terms of how I started. So with flight, it's very much taking Angela's words and as far as combining stories, she did all the hard work there. And then I just went through and picked up the bits that I wanted to be illustrated. But it was design, it was conversation, it was going back and forth. With the Bitterwood Bible and Tallow Wife books, it's a much more, the illustrations themselves are a much more immediate response. And the way they began was, I think I had a bit of downtime or was easily convinced to work on things other than what I should have been working on. And Angela said, gosh, it would be nice to have end papers in this next book that's coming out. And I kept saying, gosh, it would be nice to design end papers for something one day. And it was a long time before I ever got end papers in a book because <laughs> versions of this story kept happening. So we're like, let's let's see if we can get away with doing endpapers. I'll just do some sketches and we'll see if we can talk the publisher into doing endpapers. And I just got these folding pieces of paper that I could keep in a small pencil case and take to work with me. And every day I'd go out and I'd read a bit more of the book and I would just sketch what my response to it was. I wasn't doing pencils or I was ink straight to paper see what happened very sketchy very chatty purely responsive because I was just trying to fill up pages with images that might work as a tumble of ideas of the story for end papers and then Angela sent them to the publisher and the publisher said oh we could break them apart and put them in as individual images so we ended up with an illustrated book but not with end papers <laughs> And not and, complaining, but I still don't have any end papers in any of my books. Just oh, saying. Yeah, we didn't, don't have, no, it's just green and flat. It's just green. <laughs> it's got a great dust jacket, though. Um, so it was purely response, and it was done without the weight of expectation of these need to be 
perfect illustrations that will be printed in the book. It was just, here's a bunch of sketches. Oh, no, they're in the book. <laughs> and then getting to experience that process all the way to the end, it was liberating as an illustrator. I enjoy designing, working up, coming up with images in consultation, working out how they fit on the page. I do love that. But getting to purely draw what I was reading as I was reading it, scan it in, send it away, someone else sorted everything out. It was wonderful. <laughs> and it was also delightful in a way because it let me keep a really, as I said, not quite colloquial, but chatty immediacy a lightness of touch which I hope was saying still these are beautiful heavily ornamented embroidered fairy tale stories I want that to be hinted at in the pictures but that this is the little breath of air of someone rushing through reading them mm -hmm. and getting the opportunity to do that to put multiple images for each story that I then didn't have to go back and do more rendered versions of I just do enough sketches that Angela and the publishers could then choose from among them and make the decision at that end was really delightful. It's been so nice getting to do it again for later stories in that world, um, but a very different approach. And one of, I mean, one of the things I love about those little illustrations is that they, they, they feel like movement. They feel like a glance kind of thing. Um, I, and I love that sense of, um, yeah, there's something so much about a shift on the page, I think, with those. They're not, you know, I mean, you have done, you've done some amazing ones that I know, you know, some, some are a bit sketchy, um, but that's but that's that whole, you know, speed glance kind of thing. But then there are things like the detail of uh, in Embers and Ash, the shift that's embedded in the cliff face, um, oh, yeah. In, in the, the Wife, you know, I mean, that's incredible. Also, the um, in the Tello Wife novella, the little illustration of the two girls, um, the acrobats climbing up the ropes that go up into the sky and you don't know where they go. Um, just, you know, the, the detail with those ones is amazing. Um, yeah. And I do... For me, one of the things they had... It, the difference between the illustrations in the in flight and, and in the other books is in flight you're working in an orchestral mode <laughs> and in the tallow wife and bitterwood bible it's more like you know a, a stan get solo uh sax solo just reeled off kind of it and it has you know, it adds a, a verve and and an excitement to the page, and spontaneous. Oh my God! There's this wonderful little drawing. What the hell is this doing? Here, <laughs> it, it really <laughs> captures you know the story, and, and it, it 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 picks up the pace in a sense. Not the story is needed, but it, it it adds a certain kind of like I say a jazz accompaniment to to the to the text that is really lovely and exciting and the difference you know between the jazz feel of the illustrations the quickness and and, and the emotion in that quickness that's embodied in a quick sketch gives it a feel of you know more immediacy i think and so so well i suppose keeping with the musical metaphor i was thinking almost like like a tuning fork or striking 
a note here and there, giving the reader just just enough of a sense of mood, just enough of a clue as to mm -hmm. the visual world, as to the era, as to the architecture, that they can then absorb into the reading process and just incorporate into how they build the world. So it's not creating that framework the way flight does, but just little little guideposts, little flecks and flickers and after images, which I hope do contribute to it, those readers who read visually, contribute to that world that's being created in their heads. It's possibly a little more insidious. But <laughs> <laughs> one, one of the things that I love about the flight artwork was that it was, it was really the first time you worked in that style, wasn't it, Kathleen? Um, and it's, yes. And that was, and the first time you, you've had sort of borne the weight of doing the illustrations for a whole book. So there was a lot of, you know, it was a real learning curve for you and then it took sort of seven years for the book to come out. Um, so, it, but it was, like, I think it was a um, a really interesting moment in both of our careers when we, we did this together, you know, the marrying the art and the words. Yeah, yeah. definitely a mission accomplished flight jacket moment. <laughs> Definitely, but I have to say that the whole way through, Angela's been an enormous mentor for me in terms of my writing and enormous support in terms of my illustration. So, so much of what I illustrate has been shaped by her words, but also the way I think about narrative has been shaped by conversations and feedback from Angela as well. So I find it really interesting to look back yes, at this as a point in our career, but also as an example of all the points at which my my progress as an illustrator keeps touching Angela's words and being shaped by them. Uh, Angela, you have a new book coming out uh, soon, uh, the, the Path of Thorns. Did Kathleen get to add some some of her magic to that? Uh, not quite yet, but it's, it's coming out from Titan. The paperback will be out from Titan. And but we're also doing uh, a hardcover limited edition through Tartarus. Oh, yeah. Like, like we did with um, All the Memory Bones. And I love I love the cover that Kathleen did for that because it's got the the dust jacket and the figure of Mirren's looking one way. And then if you take that off, you've got the, the boards with the, um, the, the foils and the characters looking the other way. So it's just a really clever little thing that, that, that Kathleen came up with. Um, so she's going to do the same, you know, she's going to do another little illustration just for the cover for um, the Path of Thorns for the character of Asher. Um, so yes, which which we've been, I've been sort of describing as Jane Eyre meets Frankenstein meets, meets Dark Shadows. So, <laughs> so and I have to say, when I was reading the book, and again, little <laughs> sub-stories and asides and fairy tales within fairy tales, I was like, oh, I really wish I was drawing my way through this one too. <laughs> well, you, you know, um, there's a whole, I think this book, I mean, if this book were to like come out, it seems to A, like it, it, PS should be able to, to resell this to some slightly savvy American publisher to put this on in every single bookstore because as I say it nails something you know uh, empowering of women which is a big deal right here in the US of A now I mean god we're catching up with the 18th century yay lucky <laughs> us <laughs> that said 
I mean, um, you could, you guys could repackage every story in all those four collections that Angela has, each one as a single book. A, you could spend the the you know a, a lot of time doing this and sells these books. I think would sell like hotcakes. They're really, really beautiful and I think attractive to a, a wide uh, audience. I mean, a just as me, you know old man sitting here reading this book i loved it. it yet i at the same time i thought oh my god i'm gonna get to read this to a kid who will just be you know maybe slightly <laughs> damaged by it but hopefully in a good way excellent well i think I mean, andrew and i have discussed this before what we would really like is for someone with a castle to lock us in it for a little while and only let us out when we have produced a certain number of illustrated books yes yes but we'd also love to do, uh, you know, the, the Sauda World novels, all of them, and mosaic novels, as graphic novels. Mm. That would be amazing to, you know, to be able to just go through, what have I got, the, the three mosaic novels um, and then the two full novels, you know, All Murmuring Bones and A Path of Thorns, do them as graphic novels and then you know maybe the next two books which will be uh, a briar book of the dead and the a crimson road so you know one day one day working on it i've been speaking with kathleen jennings she's the illustrator and angela slatter she's the author of flight from ps publishing thank you for joining me ladies More than thank welcome. you so much thank you for having You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.